Well, open your Bibles this morning again, if you would, to the, the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. And I'll be reading uh, verse 5, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, in your hearing this morning. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And let us pray. Father, thank you again for just uh, the time of singing to thee. We thank you that you have brought us to this place this day. We thank you for the joy of knowing Christ. We thank you for the the joy of worship and praise and adoration. And in these moments, I I would ask for the, the help of your Holy Spirit to bring forth your holy word in a way that is honoring to thee, in a way that is pleasing to thee, and in a way that is... Um, instructive to our minds and and truly strengthening and edifying to our hearts and and to our souls. And I pray it might serve also as a a preparation for the privilege of observing um, and remembering what your son suffered in our stead on the cross as well. So just bless our time together and might it uh, be pleasing to thee and honoring to thee. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day, we uh, focused our our attention particularly on the fourth verse of the first chapter of Hebrews, and uh, we noted that that particular uh, text forms a a bridge or a point of transition between the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1 and then verses 5 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. And and it does that really in in two ways. On the one hand, it clarifies our mind as to uh, what happened to our Lord after he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we learn there that he became better than angels. He had an exalted status that they did not have. But it also prepares our mind for the great theme that unites verses 5 through 14, which is the superiority of Christ over angels. He has a more excellent name than they. So this this theme of the superiority of Christ over angels is brought out especially in this section, uh, verses 5 through 14. And, and the writer of Hebrews, whoever that may be, does this by means of, of seven quotations from the Old Testament. Um, five are from the book of Psalms, one is from the book of Deuteronomy, and one is from the book of Second Samuel. And um, the, the value of making the point in this way by means of these Old Testament citations or quotations is it, it's, it gives it great authority because it is from the Holy Scripture. It's making the point by uh, looking at Holy Scripture. The Puritan John Owen wrote that the testimony of which, in a matter of faith, he insisted on is that of the Scripture. He refers the Jews unto that common principle which was acknowledged between them. He says men had not yet learned in such context context to make that caviling return, which we are now used to. How do you know these scriptures to be the word of God? Well, they're persuaded it was the word of God, so there's an authority there. He says, our apostle here confidently sends the Hebrews to the acknowledged rule of their faith and worship, whose authority he knew they would not decline. He quotes uh, Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to the word, it's because there is no light in them. It's because they, they have no dawn. So this superiority of Christ is highlighted by an appeal to the Scripture, and I think that it's an appeal to multiple Scriptures, even underscores the authority. 
Now, no more than one author has, has made the point that uh, these seven quotations can be divided into um, six different, excuse me, three different pairs. And uh, the first one is in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5, which we'll look at today. Um, the second one is uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. The third is in Hebrews 1, 8 through 12. And then um, the last verse in Hebrews 1, 13 is a, a reference from uh, Psalm chapter 100, verse 1. We'll talk more about that in coming days. But this morning, our attention is on, on the first pair, two quotations from the Old Testament. The first one is from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. And the second one is from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14. And part of the significance of these two particular quotes together is to the original readers, at least William Lane makes this point, to the original readers, these were familiar messianic texts. So they were aware of this and the historical background presented a view of the Messiah that looked towards the future. And also, as Philip Hughes wrote, God, what our Lord says, excuse me, what these two quotes say, God never made to any angel any declaration comparable to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 and 2 Samuel. Samuel 7.14. Well, this morning our, our focus is on the, these two quotations then that are found in verse 5. And I've, I've chosen the word superiority again. Um, we'll, we'll look at these two quite, uh, excuse me, quotations in order and we'll, we'll seek to bring out the superiority of Christ over angels in two ways. The superiority of Christ over angels in two ways. And just looking at the two different texts that are quoted. So the first one is the basis or the foundation of his superiority over angels. The foundation of his superiority over angels. And I'm thinking here of the words, To which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. This is from Psalm chapter 2 and and verse 7. That's a psalm that's uh, entitled, it's been entitled, Psalm chapter 2, in its entirety, it's been entitled, The Lord and His Anointed, or The Reign of the Lord's Anointed. Derek Kidner, who's written helpfully on the Psalms, uh, writes this, although it has no superscription, no title, this psalm, it's ascribed to David in Acts chapter 4 and verse 25, and identified as the second psalm in Acts 13.33. It is much quoted in the New Testament, both for its high claims for the person of God's anointed and for its vision of its, his universal kingdom. It's unsurpassed for its buoyant, fierce delight in God's dominion and his promise to his king. Um, the historical situation would have been um, Israel squelching various rebellions from Gentile nations And the way Kidner puts it, a greater, however, than David or Solomon was needed to justify the full fury of these threats and the glory of these promises. So under this this first heading, the force of this quote in, in heightening our appreciation for the Lord's superiority over angels, I think it's brought out by three further considerations. And the first of these is simply to notice the nature of a rhetorical question. Uh, That's a question that's asked in order to to create a dramatic effect or to make a point uh, rather than get an answer, although an answer will at least be in somebody's mind. B.F. Westcott noted that the use of rhetorical questions is characteristic of this particular letter. So it's a powerful way of, of making a point because it forces the listener, at least in his or her mind, to respond. It sort of draws them into the subject at hand. So just to kind of give you an example of how the writer of Hebrews does this, there's, there's another instance in, in chapter 1 and verse 14. Um, the, the question, 
question about angels is about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? The answer is yes. So, so it kind of pulls you into the discussion at hand. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the answer is, we won't. So again, it kind of, kind of focuses uh, one's thinking. Uh, one more example, uh, Hebrews seven eleven. Now, if excuse me. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, that was the case. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? There would be no need. And then in our text also, it's a rhetorical question, to which of the angels did he ever say, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, none, zero. He never said that to any angel. So it kind of just makes the point a bit more powerfully. Secondly, our, our appreciation for the superiority of Christ over angels, I think, is bolstered by reminding ourselves of how magnificent angelic, uh, angelic beings are in the Holy Scriptures. I know I touched on that to some extent last week, but I, I just would push this a little further. They are presented in the Bible as amazingly powerful and extraordinary beings. John Owen wrote his assertion respects not only the community of them, but any or all of the chief uh, or princes among them. There are chief princes. He's, he's making reference here to Daniel 10, 13. There are chief princes among angels, and of them Michael, the prince of the people of God, is said to be one. That is, not in order, but the chief in dignity, their head and leader. Now saith the apostle, to which of these or of the rest of them were these words spoken? And just to kind of refresh your mind, in Isaiah chapter 6, Verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And then it says, A seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, and one writes that the seraphim are fiery, angelic beings. The Hebrew word seraphim means flames. Uh, six wings suggest remarkable powers. The reference to face and feet with their capacity for speech in verses 3 and 7, and his hand imply composite creatures such as are represented in ancient New Eastern art. And it goes on, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. In the book of Second Kings, we read about an Assyrian representative um, who was threatening the people of God in a very demeaning way. And so Hezekiah prays, and here's the response. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come to the city or shoot an arrow there, neither shall he come before it with a shield, nor throw up a mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Shanachrib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. 
Uh, we read at least one aspect of our Lord's return from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to those as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is superior to angels, so our appreciation for his superior intrinsic excellency over angels, I think it's sharpened, I think it's increased. When we consider something of this, this resplendent picture the Bible gives of angels, they're, they're powerful spiritual beings. They, they seem to have various ranks, uh, of, uh, various levels of authority and rank. They're associated with God's glory. But to none of them did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. None of them received that kind of exclusive title. Uh, one has written, Angels as a body are sometimes called sons of God, Psalm 49.1, Psalm 89.6. But to not one is the title Son of God given individually in the long line of revelation. So the force of the text, for to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, heightens our appreciation um, for the superiority of Christ over angels as we meditate a little bit on the magnificence of angels as they are revealed in Holy Scripture. Well, thirdly, it's by considering the significance of, of his exaltation, his exaltation. Here I'm thinking of these words, today I have begotten thee. And two questions arise about this phrase. Number one is to what does he refer? Today I have begotten thee. What does that refer to? Well, there are some who believe it's a reference to the eternal generation of the person of Christ, but there's really nothing in the context, I don't think, to support that. Others believe that it's a reference to his birth, some to his baptism. It seems to me, in the immediate context, um, it has a reference to the exaltation of the person of Christ. Today I have begotten thee. The immediate context, I think, it's a reference to the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God the Father. Verse 3 speaks of his sitting down at the right hand of majesty, and verse 4 speaks of him having become better than angels because he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, now, I would add that, when, that this exaltation of Christ should be understood in, in connection with his resurrection. It should be thought of in connection with his resurrection, his ascension, his accession, excuse me, his accession, follow his resurrection. And the resurrection especially indicates the God's approval of the work of Christ on the cross. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, Paul quotes the very same text, and he does connect it with the resurrection. So we, he says, we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now Philip Hughes writes, in the apostolic perspective, the day of the resurrection of Jesus is the chief focal point in the interpretation of today I have begotten thee. It's that event uh, that Jesus was designated the Son of God in power. Uh, the Apostle Paul specifically 
proclaims the resurrection as the fulfillment of Psalm 2-7 when he tells his audience in Antioch, we bring you good news that what God promised to the Father, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And then he, he writes this, to sum up, we may say that at the very moment of his earthly mission, the incarnate Messiah is the son beloved and accepted by the Father, but that the day spoken of here on which he is said to have been begotten by God is the day of his glorious victory and vindication. That's because the resurrection is a vindication of what he accomplished on the cross. This day belongs in the first place to the event of the resurrection, but it extends also to the ascension of Christ and his glorification at the right hand of divine majesty. In other words, resurrection, ascension, and glorification should be viewed as forming a unit uh, each each one contributing to the exaltation of the Son to transcendental heights of power and dignity. So today I have begotten thee. The, the accent in our text, it, it, it's on his exaltation, but it should be thought of in conjunction with the resurrection, the ascension, and then the session, exaltation of Christ at the right hand of God. Well, the second question would be this. What is the ongoing significance of this foundational reality? And what's the ongoing significance to, to you and I? And, and I think one answer is it's, it's a doctrine that um, is of great assistance in persevering in the Christian life in the midst of obstacles and difficulties. We pray about the difficulties that one another were going through. And, and what I'm pointing out here is the exaltation of Christ is, is a great clear means that God has established to help his people in the midst of, of difficulties. When we get to chapter 12, if we ever do, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? How do we run the race that is set before us? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so clearly a, a deliberate, unhurried consideration of our Lord's session, exaltation at the right hand of the majesty on high, which presupposes the work on the cross. It, it's the means that God has ordained for persevering in the faith. Um, and the Apostle Paul makes it clear that this activity of the soul, Paul adds a little bit to this, he, he makes it clear this activity of the soul in, in fixing our eyes on things above it has to be relentless. It has to be. He puts it like this. If then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Then he says, set your affection or, or set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. So we see here that one who has been raised up with Christ by the experience of resurrection power in the soul, they will have this desire to seek those things above. It, it corresponds to the inclinations of the, of the new nature. So when you hear... You need to seek those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's not going to be, do I have to? It's going to be, I, I want to. It fits in with the character of, of being a new creation in Christ. And, and notice also what, what Paul does, he presents this, it's opposed to setting your minds on things of the earth. He, he presents it as being one or the other. Now, why does he do that? The answer is because you can't do both. Um, 
John Davenant wrote that no one can savor of things heavenly and things of the earth at the same time. You can't multitask here because one cancels out the other. It's like you can't serve God and mammon. It's either one or the other. And so it's either seeking those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God or setting one's mind on things of the earth. So the, the, the takeaway for us is to be assiduous and relentless in seeking those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And, and God will use that to empower and strengthen one in the midst of all kinds of difficulties that come into the Christian life. So in the first place, we see here the foundation of this superiority based on this quote from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. And secondly, the continuity of this superiority of the person of Christ. First of all, the foundation and then the continuity. And what I'm emphasizing here is that there's no term limits on the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God the Father. I mean, we won't get to a place where we have to look back and say, wasn't it great when Jesus was the Lord of Lords and King of Kings? Wasn't it great when he was in charge, when he was ruling, when he was reigning? And what I'm emphasizing here is the continuity of his superiority over his angels because of his ongoing place at the right hand of God the Father. And here I'm thinking of these words, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Now this is a quote from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14. It's a part of what is called the Davidic covenant. You might just turn there for a few moments. 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, part of the Davidic covenant. And uh, I'm just going to kind of give a, a, a bit of an overview here. Um, in verses 1 through 7 um, is... Uh, it brings out David's intention to build a temple for the Lord. Second Samuel, I'm not going to read all these verses, but in verses 1 through 7, it brings out David's intention to build a temple for the Lord. That doesn't work out. Then in verses 8 and following, uh, it really emphasizes God's covenant with David. So if you would begin in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a, a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you so so far a great name rest a house and then in verses 12 through 16 this is really the the heart of the Davidic covenant and where our text is, is quoted from when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And, and this next line is what's quoted in our text. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, and we'll talk about that in a moment, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So as you reflect on, on these words, as, as you would have time to do so, in one sense, 
um, the application is to Solomon and subsequent earthly queen, uh, excuse me, earthly kings. Dale Ralph Davis uh, quotes Palmer Robertson about that, about the earthly kings and, and, and the length of the kingdoms. He says, from David's accession, somewhere around 1000 BC to the fall of Jerusalem, over 400 years had transpired. Uh, the average dynasty in Egypt and Mesopotamia during the, their days of greatest stability was something like 100 years. Uh, David's successors even outlasted the long-lived 18th dynasty of Egypt, which endured for about 250 years. And so when, when you read a, a verse or a part of a, a verse that says, when he commits iniquity, I will connect him, excuse me, I will correct him, uh, certainly that's a reference to earthly kings. However, there's other language here that make it clear that, that a messianic interpretation that transcends these times is also being advanced. In verse 12, I read, I will raise up for your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. William Lane comments on this verse. He says, in a narrow sense, the oracle of Nathan had reference to Solomon, but a messianic interpretation had been encouraged by a phrase in verse 12, which is what I just read, that precedes the promise of sonship. The divine promise pointed to a successor who would be raised up by God subsequent to David's generation, who would be the legitimate heir to the promised kingdom. And I think what is really powerful is verses 13 and 16, he shall establish a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This, this transcends temporal earthly kings. So in, in, in the broader witness of scripture clearly understand, understands this as a reference to a, a messianic kingdom that will rule forever or will be forever, I should say. Psalm 89.3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And then William Lane points out that the passage was interpreted um, he's talking about Psalm chapter 2, excuse me, 2 Samuel. The passage was interpreted in a distinctly messianic sense in the first century is certain from a clear allusion to 2 Samuel 7.12 and John 7.42. So John 7.42 quotes 2 Samuel 7.12 this way, does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's seed? So the repetition of this term forever connected with the Messiah being descended from David uh, brings out the continuity or the perpetuity of our Lord's superiority. Uh, the words, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. They, they come from a messianic prophecy about a king who will reign forever and ever and ever. Let me just offer to your thinking here under this second heading. Uh, three further texts that, that bear upon this, this continuity of our Lord's superiority uh, over angels. Um, the first one is just, I would, I would remind you, this is a feature of our Lord's, um, one of the glorious features of our Lord's incarnation, of our Lord's birth. Listen to these words from Gabriel to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and will bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be, a, he will be great and he shall be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. These are the words of Gabriel to Mary prior to the birth of Jesus. And secondly, we could ask, well, what will this Messiah be like that will rule and reign forever? We know that he's superior to angel, angels. He always will be. But what character will he possess? Well, Philip Hughes, in, in his commentary, makes reference to 
Isaiah 7.14, which is a, a prophecy of our Lord's birth, God is with us, Emmanuel, God with us. So we can say that's what his character will be like, it is God with us. But, but you know, there's Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9, uh, we read for a child that tells us more about what he will be like. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end, verse 7 says, no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. Uh, Hughes writes, our, our author is saying then, this ancient promise finds its fulfillment in the coming of Jesus, who is both son of God and son of David, truly God and through the incarnation, truly man, and that never was any such promise made with reference to an angel. So the Messiah about... <clears throat> who God said, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. This is the one who's superior to angels perpetually. Uh, and um, His kingdom will endure forever. This is God with us. This is the mighty God. This is the prince of peace. This is the wonderful counselor. Well, then, thirdly, um, how can one participate in this kingdom that lasts forever? It is a kingdom. Christ is the Messiah. He's superior to angels he will rule forever. That's true. How does one participate in this particular kingdom? Um, I, I find the, the words, I'll leave you with these words from uh, the prophet Isaiah to be helpful. These are the first three verses of the 55th uh, chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. It says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what is not satisfied? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. This is kind of a, a rich text, I think, of invitation. And it's, it's negative in the sense that if you want to participate in this kingdom, it says, stop pursuing that, that which could never meet the deepest needs of the soul. It's like, don't seek things that are vain and become vain. Rather, the, the only way is to turn and, and, and we know it's to turn to God through Christ, and that's, that's how the deepest needs of the soul can be satisfied. And, and we also know here, it's fascinating, I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David, which is to say that the presence of sin, the heinousness of sin, the reality of sin, it's, it's no hindrance to being a part of this everlasting kingdom because that's the character and the nature of the gospel. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I mean, that's what really this is all about. It's, it's sinners that know that they can come to God and, and God is always merciful to them through the person of Christ. So let me just leave you with these words from our Lord. In the very last book of the Bible, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And let us pray. Father, I, I pray that you might be pleased to take what we have considered this morning and apply it to our own souls for your honor and for your glory and for our good. We thank you for the glory of this kingdom where your son rules and your son reigns. And, 
I would pray you would use these considerations to be uh, of help to our own thinking process as we consider what a great, glorious Savior we have in the person of Christ. And we, we pray that as we would turn our hearts to the contemplation of what he accomplished for us on the cross, this would serve as just kind of a, a precious stimulus of, of heart and soul as we consider these redemptive realities. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask the uh, brothers who are serving in the Lord's table if you would come forward at this time. And let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we make this this transition into focusing our, our minds on the reality and and the glory of the cross and and what your son accomplished for us when he took our place. I just would pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us great joy and appreciation for this great holy event, which has such great and eternal implications for us. So just bless our time together and by your Holy Spirit, impress afresh on our hearts something of, of, of the greatness of this precious accomplishment in our stead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I think it's helpful to note that in our confession on the Lord's Supper, it says the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed, to be observed in the churches to the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. And, and the Apostle Paul writes in Second Corinthians, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter eleven, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body. And the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he was to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The observing of the of Lord's table, it's one of two ordinances that we practice in, in our fellowship. It's particularly for uh, Christian believers. That is, it's for those of you who would say that you have repented of your sins, you're not relying at all upon your works. You can say in your heart of hearts, you're relying completely on the work of Christ in your stead. You're relying completely on the righteousness of Christ to be accepted by the being of God and not your works. Um, it's, it's also a, a time for us to consider particularly what Christ suffered in our stead, 
is to consider that he bore the reality of the wrath of God because of our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. The the effect of the substitutionary death of the person of Christ was not only the turning away of the wrath of God, but it's the means of being reconciled to the being of God. By nature, we are enemies with God, but because our Lord satisfied all the righteous demands of God the Father, we are now brought into fellowship with him. We are redeemed, we are purchased by the blood of the Lamb. So this is a time for you and I who are Christian believers to recall and and rejoice in these accomplishments. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you know that you haven't repented and you know that you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, it's a time to let the elements pass by, but it is also a time to reflect very deeply on the need that you have to come into a living relationship with God through the person of Christ. One more moment of prayer. Father, as we partake of these elements, we understand that they are representative. They're symbolic of something much more glorious. And so we pray that you would use our efforts to to be pleasing to thee, to, to seek to obey your word. Um, to strengthen our hearts and strengthen our resolve and increase our love and increase our delight in the glory of your being. So we pray for the continued working of your Holy Spirit during this time together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.